Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. Our mission is to make disciples who are radically devoted to Christ, having both a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by Pastor Andrew Kastner. How many of you went to the golf outing yesterday? Men, how many of you were there yesterday? Go ahead and raise your hand. Can we just say thank you to Pastor Vince for putting that together? That was a really great time. Such an amazing opportunity to do some outreach. There were so many people there that I did not recognize and, and, and got to be around them and get to know them a little bit better. Um, but one thing about golf, I started playing golf about a year ago, a little over a year. And what I've realized is that golf is both the most beautiful game that I have ever played on the most beautiful courses, the most beautiful scenery out in God's beautiful creation. And it is one of the most unsatisfying games I have ever played in my life. Because right when I think... I am going to par this hole. And I'm sorry if you don't play golf, I'm gonna use some golf terms. Par means win, okay? I'm gonna win this hole. My drive is great. I'm set up to get on the green on the second shot. And then everything goes downhill from there. The second shot goes that way, the third shot goes that way. I play from side to side across the course. Last week I played, I, I, I spent more time in bunkers than I did on grass. Golf is the most beautiful game, but is the most unsatisfying game because you have no way of predicting what is going to happen next. And likewise, I realized this week I had the opportunity to to do some songwriting, both with some of our worship leaders, worship leaders around the country, um, with the Vertical Worship Group. We sing a lot of their songs. We sang one of their songs this morning, and it's a privilege. But in songwriting, right when you think that you have uh, an amazing chorus, and you think this song is gonna be awesome, well then it's time to write the verses and you're stuck for like the next two days trying to write one stinking verse for this song and all of a sudden you're like, this is the most unsatisfying thing ever. I thought it was gonna be great, but it's not everything I hoped it would be. I don't know if you guys can relate to any of those things, whether you're a golfer or a songwriter, maybe it's something else in your, in your life. I've been remodeling my house for the last three years and right when I think that I am satisfied with how it looks and what it's like, I find another thing to be unsatisfied with. I think as human beings, we, realize, we can realize that we're prone to being unsatisfied, to be discontent with how things are. And sometimes rightfully so. How many of you at the age of, well, if you're older than 16, at the age of 16, 17, 18, you had a plan for your life. You thought you knew what you were going to do for the rest of your life. Raise your hand. How many of you had hopes and dreams and you said, I really, this is what I want to be when I grow up? How many of you can say, that is exactly how my life turned out, perfectly exactly like that plan? I know that there are some hands and, I, and we're, we're super glad and we celebrate you, but for most of us, that's not the case. Growing up, we had plans, we had dreams, we had hopes. We thought we knew what our life was going to be like. And today, looking back, wherever you are on the continuum of your life, looking back, you can probably identify multiple things that did not go the way that you thought. Things that happened in your life that you never would have expected circumstances and situations that you wish never would have occurred in your life. And that can breed a sense of dissatisfaction, discontentment. And I want to speak into your life today because God has been speaking into my life about this very thing. 
that God knows and that God sees and that God wants to be your satisfaction. And what I want to do today, what I hope to accomplish, my goal is to simply walk through scripture with you. And I want to accomplish a couple of things. I want you to hopefully see yourself in the lives of a couple of these people that we're going to talk about. But along the way, I'm going to take you through the journey and the process of how do we get to the bottom of what scripture has to say. We had a preaching seminar earlier this, this past week on Tuesday, and one of the things that stuck out to me is just the importance of preaching the story as it happened in the Bible. The Bible's full of stories, right? Old Testament, New Testament. We get to hear about how people lived their lives, things that they went through, the way that Jesus addressed a lot of things throughout the Gospels when he was alive. And it's easy to read those things and say, well, that was just a story, that's nice. I think I know what they were talking about, but I, I wasn't there, I can't relate, it was a different time. And so I hope to also accomplish uh, teaching you how you can read your Bible better, how you can glean everything that God has for you out of his word. So who's up for that challenge today? Look to your neighbor and say, I'm up for the challenge. All right, now tell it to the other neighbor that you really wanted to say it to. I want to start out by making a couple of theological statements. First of all, theologian A.W. Tozer says this, for millions of Christians, God is no more real than he is for non-Christians. They go through life trying to love an ideal and be loyal to a mere principle. Bruce Springsteen says it best. He says, everybody has a hungry heart. Everybody has a hungry heart. Blaise Pascal was a physicist and philosopher in the 1600s, and he says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. One of the things that I ran across this week as I was studying is that many theologians and sociologists have noted that in recent years, especially through the pandemic, there has been an uptick in spiritual curiosity. This longing to know my purpose, to know why, why do I feel like there is an, a void, an empty vacuum, a hole in my heart. And many times we feel that, but we don't really know why we feel that. And as a pastor, I would say from my personal experience, both as a pastor, as a biblical counselor, that hole, oftentimes we try to fill it with so many things, so many things. And sometimes it fits for a while, but just like any created thing, it wears away and it wears down and it shrinks and it eventually dies and leaves that hole again. So maybe you're here today and you've experienced that feeling. That feeling of want, that feeling of desire, that feeling of something's missing and nothing's fitting. There's a space, there's a hole, there's a vacuum. And what I want to present to you today is that God wants to fill that hole and that you can be satisfied. You can live a life of satisfaction as long as you are putting the right person into that God-shaped hole. And so I want to take you to a story in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you have your smartphone, your tablet, go ahead and turn there. What I want to do is I want to walk through this passage with you. This is going to sound a little bit less 
sermony and a little bit more teachy. Um, as we walk through this passage, I want to bring you along in the process of gleaning the truths and how I got where I am after reading this passage. I'm going to walk you through those steps. But first, we're going to read this passage. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself did not baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. And he had to go through Samaria on the way. And eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. And he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I will never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, let's make some observations out of this text. The first observation that I want you to, to hold on to is that Jesus is incredibly intentional. Jesus doesn't make mistakes. And I know that your Bible says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, but let's face it, Jesus is God, God is Jesus, the Trinity, God, man. He, he didn't have to do anything. It was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. But Jesus doesn't do anything just willy-nilly. He has a plan. He knows what's about to happen. And, it, and in fact, the route that he chose, as we read in that passage, was not the route that many Jews would, would pick. It was, in fact, the fastest route. But most Jews in that time would choose to go the long route. They did not want to pass through Samaritans because they considered Samaritans to be half-breeds. They despised Samaritans. In 722, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity. And the Assyrians that took them into captivity killed most of the men and then married the widows, 
Not because they loved them, but because it was their mission to further desecrate the Jewish line and heritage, to dishonor those women, to humiliate the Jewish line. And then when, when the Israelites came back out of captivity, King Ezra in 2 Kings 17 issues a segregation policy. Now he has good intentions. He's trying to preserve the pure and holy line of God's people. But he issues a segregation policy that essentially eradicates and, and separates out the Samaritans and anybody else that was not pure in the Jewish line. And so from that point on, both Jews and Samaritans began to reject each other, separating further and further. The Samaritans developed their own uh, version of, of their Bible in that day, their own beliefs, their own culture. And many times, if there was any interaction between Jews and Samaritans, it was hostile. So Jews avoided going through Samaria. Jesus did not. First of all, we see that Jesus does not submit to culture and he does not submit to society. Jesus was about the will of his father. And when Jesus goes through Samaria, eventually he comes to the village of Sychar. It's the hottest part of the day. And Jesus, the God-man, in, in all of his clothes and his humanity, feels that humanity. It says he's tired, he's weary, it's scorching hot. The sixth, some of you in your Bible, it says the sixth hour, that's about noon. It's the sixth hour from the time the sun rises, it's about noon. It's the hottest part of the day. Now, I, Jesus knew, knew the future, but, but for anybody else, there probably wasn't uh, a huge probability that anybody was going to be at the well at that time. That's not the time you go to get water. In fact, not only is it not the time that you go to get water, you don't typically go to get water by yourself. This is usually a group activity. The women in the village would come out in the morning when it was cool to get the water for the day, and then they would come back out in the evening when it was cooler again to get the water for the rest of the night. So we see some, some strange things happening, okay? Jesus is making unusual yet intentional choices. He's seated in a place where there shouldn't be a lot of people around, and yet, something unusual happens. A woman arrives. Unusual in itself. And then Jesus does another thing that's unusual. He speaks to her. You may think, well, that's not a big deal. Jesus speaks to a lot of people in the Bible. Why is it a big deal? It's not like when you check out at Target and you say thank you to the lady that's checking your groceries out. It's not like when you pull up to a restaurant to order your food and you're speaking to a woman as a man or a, a man to a woman. And it's just a normal interaction for us. It was not the case for them back then. He's alone. All of his disciples had gone into village to buy food. And by nature, the disciples are always fighting. So who knows what they were fighting about? Probably whether they were going to pick Chick-fil-A or Chipotle that day. The woman is startled. There's just this man sitting by the well. And then he speaks to her. And she knew that he was a Jew. It doesn't tell us how. And she's surprised. So I want to give you some historical context. The Talmud, those are the Jewish teachings and commentaries on the Torah, which was their Bible at that time, the Old Testament. 
taught that women were lesser than men, that women were to be excluded from religious teaching, that they were to be excluded from having a political voice. In fact, it just gets worse and worse. There's a rabbinic proverb that says, better the Torah be burned than read by a woman. They were not allowed in the part of the synagogue where the teaching took place. And so I want to let you know that from here on out, all the women, you can stand up and go, we have another room for you. I'm kidding. But can you imagine if that was the case? If you're a woman in this room, that you would never be allowed to hear the preaching of God's word. Your only place is to be in a separate room, knitting and sharing recipes. That's how it was. So it's highly unlikely for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman, but it's even more unlikely for a rabbi, remember Jesus taught in the synagogue, for a rabbi to engage in a theological conversation with a woman. So we see Jesus is always turning culture upside down, and he does what he does best. He gives her the gospel. He gives her the good news. After he asks for water and she says, what's going on here? Jesus replies, if, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me. I mean, at this point, the woman's probably thinking, this guy is, this guy is crazy. He doesn't make any sense. He just asked me for water. Now he's telling me that he can give me water. What's going on here? She says, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket and this well is deep. Where would you get this living water? Do you think you're greater? How can you offer better water than Jacob, the one who gave us this well? Now Jesus doubles down. He's trying to communicate something now. He says, anyone who drinks this water, pointing at the well, will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. She says, please, sir, give me this water. Yet, she still doesn't understand what he's saying because she says right at the end of that verse, so that I don't have to come here and get this water. Now, why do you think that she didn't want to come there anymore? Why do you think she didn't want to come there anymore? She was asking for the right thing, but she didn't know why she had to ask for it. And sometimes God wants to satisfy us, and we ask him to do that, but we don't really understand what's missing. We don't know what to ask for. Sometimes we react under circumstances and we cry out to God, but our focus is on the circumstance and not on God. At this point in time in this story, the Samaritan woman's focus is on the gift not the giver. She's focused on the water. She's focused on her need, but she's not focusing on what Jesus is trying to give her. He's trying to satisfy her heart. Because remember, each one of us has a God-shaped hole, and she had a God-shaped hole in her heart, and she just did not realize it yet. And Jesus is so patient and kind, and I want you to know Man, how many times have we approached scripture and read through a passage and just sat there and said, I just, I, just, I just really don't understand what I'm supposed to do with this. We've all been there. The Samaritan woman's there. Jesus is 
teaching her. And even in the, in the, in the face of Jesus, the Messiah, she doesn't understand. And this is how Jesus responds. He's so patient. He's so kind. And he knew that she didn't get it yet. So he tries again, but this time he's going to get personal. Because what does he say next? Verse 15, go and get your husband. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. So he brings up the issue of her marriage situation. What do we know about this? She's been married five times. She's living with a man now who won't give her the dignity of marriage. Not only is she being castigated in this passage for being a Samaritan woman, but it kind of appears as though she's being portrayed as just being a little bit sleazy. How many of you, of you have read that passage and thought, oh, Jesus is calling her out on her sin. That's what's happening right now. He's going to make a point. He's going to call her to repentance. How many of you have read this passage that way? Come on, you can be honest with me. That's okay. So I want to point some things out because at first glance, this seems very simple, very clear, very straightforward. Jesus is being intentionally personal here. He's addressing a hurt. See, it's highly unlikely for a woman to be married more than once in that time. In a world where divorce is so regular now, it's hard to imagine that. But, but in those days, getting divorced for a woman made her completely undesirable, marked her with shame, made her a castaway. She had nothing. If you were divorced, you had nothing. You were often returned to your parents and Many of the parents in that day just didn't want their kids coming home. It's not like, you know, <laughs> it's not like today where like, you know, my parents would gladly take me in if I was ever in a pinch. That's not how it was back then. Rabbi Hillel, who preceded Jesus, taught the, men, the Jewish men that it's okay with God for you to divorce your wife if you don't like the way that she cooks. So wives, the next time you burn a burrito in your home, your husband has complete right to just say, I want a divorce. Once divorced, you're declared unworthy. But she's been married and divorced five times. Are you tracking with me why this seems a little bit odd? If a woman has already been divorced once, what man would want to take her? You don't marry divorced women in that time, yet she's been married five times. Many modern conservative theologians believe that not only did she not have loose morals, but that in fact she was very beautiful and had great character. Some theologians speculate that in fact she struggled with infertility, which was even a higher reason for divorce. If you can divorce somebody for burning your burrito, then you can definitely divorce them for not giving you a child. The average age for a woman to be married for the first time in that time was 12 years old. 
So at 12 years old, I doubt that this woman ever imagined that by the time that she was 30, that she would be married and divorced five times. That as she stood before her friends and her family in her first wedding, dreaming of her future, her hopes, her plans, the family she hoped to have, the loving husband she hoped to adore. That by the age of 30, she would be married and divorced five times, accepted for a while, but eventually rejected five times. And now the man that she's living with, he won't do her the dignity of marriage. But at least she has a place to live and clothes to put on and food to eat. Praying that she just does not burn his burrito and he casts her out. Living on the end of the smallest, most frail branch that you can live in, in life. That's where Jesus finds her. She came alone to the well at the wrong time of the day. She didn't come with the other women at the right time. She's alone. She's hurt. She's been disappointed and she's in a hard place. Jesus finds her and he sees her and he pursues her. Yes, pursues, he's not rebuking her. He's pursuing her. He's saying, I know what you've been through. I see your life. I know what you long for. I know the love that you've longed for for your entire married life, all five marriages. And every time, your heart being chipped away a little bit more, leaving more and more holes, more and more cracks. And he's saying, you can be satisfied. You can be satisfied. Maybe you've gone through life thinking, well, Jesus is calling her out on her sin. He's not pursuing her. Maybe you, you, you struggle with the idea that God is a God in heaven. He's just sitting up there with a God-sized Bible waiting for you to mess up just so he can come down and give you a good old thump on the head. And while God is a God of justice and judgment, God is a God of mercy. And if all you know about your Bible is that it's a rule book instead of a love letter, then you're missing out on the fullness of your relationship with God. God is a God of justice, but he is a God of mercy. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, mercy boasts that God's mercy is more powerful than judgment. Anyone can condemn or judge Yet no one has the right to mercy. And still, from God, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's why, because it promotes reconciliation and relationship with God. 
Jesus could have told her everything she did wrong. But instead, he told her everything that ever happened to her. God cares more about intimacy and relationship than he cares about your ability to be perfect. If perfection is the goal instead of relationship, you will not be satisfied. It's only through a relationship that sanctification comes. One of my favorite stories depicting God's truest love and his mercy and compassion is in the story of Peter. In John 21, this is after Jesus has died, he's been buried, he's been resurrected, he's appeared to his disciples a couple of times. He's walking back out to the Sea of Galilee, right where his ministry began. Full circle. And Peter and some of the other disciples had gone back to fishing. Probably sad, probably wondering what was going to happen next. They're out in the boat fishing, and we see a reiteration of a story that we hear at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus walks out to the Sea of Galilee, and he sees a boat, and he calls out, Hey, you got fish? And they're out on the boat, and they're checking the nets, checking the nets. And they're like, no. And what does Jesus say? Cast your net on the other side. Now that should have been a clear indication of, of who he was. Because the disciples had not realized that it was Jesus yet. And, and Peter's on, on that boat. And you know what? Our, our buddy Pete, he's not the brightest of the disciples. He's in fact a, a little dense in a lot of the stories that we read about him. But finally one of the disciples realizes, says, Peter, that's Jesus. Now what's the last thing that we remember about Peter before Jesus dies? What's the last thing that Peter does before he goes off the stage in scripture? He denies Jesus three times. Peter realizes this Jesus and what does he do? He, he grabs all of his stuff and he just plunges into the water and he goes and he, he goes to Jesus as fast as he possibly can. Jesus receives him. He calls everybody else in. He prepares them a meal. And after that, Jesus engages Peter in a conversation. And Jesus asks him three questions. The same question three times, but in three different ways. It's easy to read this passage and think this is a quid pro quo moment in Scripture. Jesus, uh, Peter denied Jesus three times, so Jesus is going to challenge him three times. And there are three words for love in the Bible. Agape is the sacrificial, unconditional love of God. That's what he shows us. Phileo means warm affection and friendship. Eros is a kind of love that a mommy and daddy have. Jesus asks three, the same question three times, but in a different way. Your Bible uses the word love every single time, but I want to show you something that's really, really cool. The first time Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I phileo you. 
affection, friendship, brotherly love. So again, Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you love me like I love you? Are you on my level? Do you love me the way that I love? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Jesus asks him one more time, Peter, but he changes what he says because he's made his point. Do you phileo me? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know I denied you. You know I cursed you out in front of everybody that was around me and that I ran away and I've just been out on this boat fishing and I feel like I just need to give up because I can't do what you're asking me to do, what I think you want me to be. I can't be that. And that third time, and Peter, it says he was hurt because Jesus said this, but that sadness came from an understanding that he would never be able to agape Jesus the way that Jesus agape loved him. But when Jesus said that the third time, he said, Peter, I, do you phileo me? Peter says, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. The mission hasn't changed. The way that I want to use you hasn't changed. The plan hasn't changed. I know you can't love me the way I love you. So love me the way that you can and do what I've called you to do. Let me be enough so that you can do what you need to do because you'll never be what I am. Friends, we can't be on the level of God. We can't love the way that he loves, but we can receive that love knowing that he knows us fully. He loves us fully. Through Jesus' through Jesus's blood, he accepts us fully. All of your past, all of your failures, all of the things that you planned to do and they didn't work out, all of the hurts, all of the relationships you've lost, the people in your life that are gone, the failed marriages, the kids who have walked away from the faith, the bosses that have been so critical and abusive. God sees all of that. And he wants to use it. He wants to use it to draw you closer to him. He wants to fill the void that all of those hurts have left in your life so that you can be satisfied. And God can use that. Because if we go back and look in John chapter 4, at the end of that story in verse 39, the woman goes back to the village, not with her head hung low. It wasn't a shame session. She ran back with the good news, and she, what did she say? She said, come and see this man who told me everything, everything I ever did. And what happens? The village comes out to meet Jesus, to hear the good news, and they believe. One of the first instances of mass evangelism in the Bible, and who does God choose 
Who does Jesus choose? A Samaritan woman, an outcast, the broken, the tarnished, the cast away. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling like you're broken. Maybe you're feeling like I'm never gonna measure up. Maybe you're here thinking I've done, I've made too many mistakes. I've peaked in what I can do for God. I've peaked in how he can use me. And in fact, most days I'm not even sure if God loves me, let alone likes me. And all of those little holes, all of those God-shaped holes, all of those cracks from your brokenness and your hurt, I want to tell you today, on the basis of Scripture, on the basis of the story of the Samaritan woman, on the basis of the story of Peter, where Jesus lifts his face and says, feed my sheep. I still have a plan for you. I still have a purpose for you. I'm going to build the church on your shoulders even after the biggest failure that you've ever committed in your life. You can be satisfied. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you ask God to fill those holes in your heart, your broken heart, your hurt heart, your abused heart, your sinful heart, the mistakes you've made that have created holes, the hurt that other people have done that have created holes, let God satisfy you. If you're here today and you don't know what it's like to have a relationship with God, you're just like the Samaritan woman. You're an enemy of God's family, and yet he pursues you. He's pursuing you right now. And he wants to give you living water. He doesn't, he doesn't want to give you anything that man can make. He wants to give you what only he can give. Living water that will quench your thirst, your spiritual thirst. The, all those questions you've been asking about God and is there something better? And, and can I ever be happy? Can I ever have joy? Can I ever have peace? Can I ever have good friends? Can I ever be in a great community? Can I be known and seen and loved truly? Jesus is calling to you today and saying, yes, you can be satisfied. Drink the living water. Jesus is the living water. He is the good news. So if you're here today and you want to receive Jesus into your heart to fill that God-shaped hole, all you need to do is pray. And you can say words like this. Jesus please come into my heart. I acknowledge all of my mistakes. I accept responsibility for all of the sin that I have committed. Please forgive me. Please come into my heart. Please heal my heart. Cleanse my heart and make me whole. In your name I pray. Amen. If you're a believer here today, God wants you to live a satisfied life. Don't worship the gift. Don't worship all the things that God has given you that are good 
and, and pretend that that's God filling your life. You, the worship of God is the only thing that can satisfy you. This book can teach you how to be satisfied. Every page, every story, every word is for the intense purpose of helping you understand the God who wants to fill your life. This church, look around the room, these people that love the Lord are here to help you understand how to fill your heart with God more. That's why we exist. Don't worship the gift, worship the God who gives the gift and he will satisfy you. God, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for your word and I thank you for every person in this room and online. I thank you that your word is living and powerful and it teaches us. I thank you for just showing me just the beauties of your word as I've studied the last several weeks and understanding these stories and how much it's just called me to chase after you. Yes, to try to sin less, but also to receive your mercy and grace, knowing that Jesus, you died to take away guilt and shame. To just confess, to repent of our sins and to press on. To press on towards you, to press on towards the prize, to sit across the table and just enjoy you and learn about you and draw closer to you. And I thank you that we've done that today. And I pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning or would like more information about Harvest New Beginnings, visit at harvest.church.